my god hi guys thanks for showing up to my birthday party what an incredible group of people and we're we're gonna have some fun it'll be i have slides you know maybe i'll use them maybe i won't i'll do it my way so i listen to that song a lot right and first of all Frank Sinatra is most known for singing it, but my favorite version is the Elvis Presley version. He definitely did things his way for better or for worse. And I noticed in the very beginning of that song, it goes, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. So he's reflecting, right? He's looking back, and he's able to say, I did it my way. And that immediately made me think, well, let's not wait so long. <laughs> let's be able to say today that we're doing it our way. And then when we face the final curtain, you know, we could say in times of doubt that we ate it up and spit it out. And we take the blows. They're always blows. This is not about avoiding blows, right? We're in the arena. We face blows, but... We deal with them our way, whatever that means for each and every unique and amazing, irrepeatable human here today. So, let's see. Do I do slides or do I open with a question? Question, question. At question. Okay, here's my question. I'll show the slide for it so that you see your choices. It's a multiple choice question. Of course, there is no wrong answer. The questions are unique to you. I want to get a sense of your uh, inclinations and thought patterns and proclivities. Can you guys see my screen? Wonderful. Thank you. And I'm going to open the chat so I can see the responses to this and my amazing assistant isa is on i just want to make sure isa you keep admitting people as they come in so i could be fully attentive to what we're doing here thank you so which of these let me know in the chat one two or three do you tend to think the most often one i have no time i have no time Shit, i have no time two I don't know where the time goes. Or three, I have too much time. Does anybody think that? I have too much time. Sound off in the chat, one, two, or three. Notice these things are not necessarily in direct opposition to one another, but I think the subtleties of the language we use in our own heads uh, is significant. Emma says one and two equally, sometimes three. I'm going to scroll up in the chat so I could see. A lot of twos, a lot of ones, sometimes three, one and twos. Yeah, right? We're all busy, ambitious people here who work hard. So it's easy and reasonable to feel like I don't have time or I don't know where the time goes such that I'm not advancing in the pursuit of what I really want, which opens a whole myriad of other questions, right? Like, if you don't know, if you did know where the time goes, <laughs> where would you say it goes? As an example, what I might argue, though, for a lot of us, is that we actually do have too much time. If we had less time, we would be forced to be more efficient with it. Let me ask you this. If you could only work for four hours a week, do you think you would make more money? If you could only work for four hours a week, do you think you would make more money? Emma says yes. If everybody else is a no, that's, that's quite all right. <laughs> that's an example of a constraint we can put on ourselves that forces us to maximize 
our leverage, our efficiency, and our capacity with the limitation of time. If you actually had less time, you would pay more attention to it. And so let me say this stuff in a different way. Mike says, depends on the work, four hours with what outcome? Well, that's definitely, it depends. It's dependent on you. What outcome do you want? If you only had four hours, how would you structure it? How much more quickly would you begin to delegate, to hire, to invest, to lead, to create systems that other people could follow? But when you have this abundance of time, it's so much easier to fall into the patterns of nobody can do it but me. <laughs> nobody does it as well as me. Or even sometimes nobody does it as fast as me. But there's an irony there because if you're the one doing everything, even if you do it faster, as a whole, you're going slower than you would be if there were other people on board. Which is something I had to train myself because generally I'm like a nine quick start. If you guys have taken your Colby, I'm like, nobody can do it as fast as me. So I lost my chat. So I wanted to open that up with time and I'll give you, hold on, bear with me. First time tech stuff. That's a really good quote, but I'm, I'm going to set it up first. What I also need to do, and I forgot, is spotlight me. I think I did it. There we go. Because <laughs> it is the Laura show after all. So I would call that one of the blind spots that a lot of people have when it comes to being mentally tough, when it comes to being efficient and productive, this fighting with time. And the way I deal with that is by having a long time horizon. It's one of my tenants of mental toughness, which we're going to be going in depth over in the three-day masterclass that starts tomorrow, I have a long time horizon. So, and I'm jumping around here, but you all are smart and I think you can handle it. So we have this guy, Srila Prabhabuddha, and I apologize for probably butchering the pronunciation of that, but he came over to America and founded the Hare Krishna order of Buddhist monks. And he began with this one small temple. And he named that temple the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. One day a guy says to him, this is just one tiny temple. How could you possibly call yourself the International Society? And he responded with, we already have temples and devotees all over the world. There is only one thing that separates us, time. Does that resonate with anybody? Can you let me know in the chat if that resonates and that opens up something for you? If the only thing that separated you from achieving what you wanted to achieve was time, how much better would you feel? How much more empowered to take the effective, efficient actions that you need to take would you be? And when things are challenging, which is natural and normal, how much more calm can you remain if you're able to tell yourself the only thing separating me from getting there is time? Now it's my hope that you're more able to stay the course, walk your path, and continue to do what you need to do. It gives you this feeling of inevitability. The inevitability of attaining what you want with time. But if you remain at the mercy of whatever, your feelings are about time. I don't have time. There's not enough time. Where does the time go? 
One of the consequences of that we see in this Dunning-Kruger curve, which kind of shows the common experience that a lot of us face whenever we embark on something new. So you can call this x-axis here, this is the same as the passage of time, right? You embark on something and for a myriad of reasons, right? The novelty of it, your own enthusiasm, beginner's luck, they call it. You're like, oh man, like things are, I did it. Things are going great. And then challenges arise. You learn more. So the complexity in what you're doing increases. Like as an example, uh, building funnels, right? We all could probably lay out the simplest form of a funnel. As an example, free opt-in, upsell, right? But then as soon as I think about that, what does my mind begin to do? It begins to complicate it because I have more knowledge now. I'm like, well, we should add an order bump to the free opt-in. Oh, we should test these price points on the upsell. Should we set up that split test right out of the gate? Now, a simple funnel that could take, you know, an experienced person 30 minutes to put online, we're developing all these iterations and we're overcomplicating it. Not saying that that's good or bad, but that's why we tend to see this dip happen as we gain some expertise. And then in the worst situation, we say, oh, this is way harder than I thought. It's not sustainable. You don't have that long time horizon in mind, right? You want things to happen faster and faster and faster than they feel like they are. So you say to yourself, oh shit, ah, I'm gonna try something different. You go back here and this loop continues over and over and over again. And we call that shiny object syndrome. <laughs> That's a huge, like the curve in the cart in the chart is what gives us our shiny object syndrome. But if we remember this, the only thing that separates us is time. We can continue on the curve and get closer to where we want to go. Anybody who is winning, anybody who is a complete badass at what they do, they've ended up here. Because they've gone through this, they've learned a ton, and they're able to move forward along the curve. Does that make sense? Is that useful? Understanding a long time horizon is one of my, that's why I opened with it, right? It's my secret weapon when I'm freaking out. When I'm like, oh, God, what? I'm not there yet. Everybody else seems to get there really fast. Of course, we're on the outside looking in. We really have no idea. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. What the hell? I'm not there yet. And so I will quite literally say to myself, I have a long time horizon. And with a long time horizon, I am on track. And the things that take you a year, five years to attain, just how we on the outside look at others, Others will look at us and wonder how we did it so quickly. But we were just able to stay on the path. We did not loop in this shiny object syndrome loop, hopefully, dozens of times, which ends up being the actual biggest waste of time at all, potentially. I wanna say it in one other way. I fielded a few questions recently about or from business owners who either had their best year ever last year and they immediately want to 10X it. I get it. <laughs> Healthy, normal, reasonable ambition. And another business owner friend of mine who did not beat 2022 in 2023, 
But after doing a year in review exercise that I teach, and he was so upset. He was so upset. He was like, I didn't beat it. I didn't beat 2022 and 2023. But when we did the year in review exercise, he realized, oh my God, I was more profitable in 2023. And oh my God, I've developed systems that will enable me to scale. I'm, I'm flipping the years. I didn't beat 2022 and 2021. You guys know what I'm saying. Time, she's a motherfucker. It's the whole point of this, <laughs> of, of this dialogue. But he discovered that he was in fact more profitable and he had built the systems to scale. So that leads me to this. You need to be somewhere. Imagine this. You need to be somewhere in five hours. Your kid is giving birth. You're something crucially important that you get to this destination in five hours. You plug that destination into Google Maps. Google Maps tells you that you will arrive to your destination in three and a half hours. Does it make sense to speed? Does it make sense to blow a red light? Does it make sense to take some shady shortcut? No. <laughs> In fact, you can even slow down on occasion. You can even take a nap, a 10-minute power nap, if you need to. But so many of us have this fucked up relationship with time. So many of us do not hold on to, I have time, I have a long time horizon, and we end up speeding, running the red light, and taking the shady shortcut, which causes us to blow everything up, and then we do not arrive even in the five hours that we have. We do loops like this. I understand and love. Money loves speed. Yes, money loves speed. At the same time, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. For so many of you, if you simply continue to do what you are doing, you will get to that destination in the appropriate time horizon. It's only when you speed up, run the red lights, and take the shady shortcuts that you risk fucking all of that up. So I encourage everybody to shift their perspective and their relationship with time. And here are the ways I say it to myself, especially when I'm in it. <laughs> especially when I'm feeling some type of way. I am on track. Time is my ally. You cannot do anything about the passage of time. Pretty much, barring like mind-altering substances and stuff. For the most part, you cannot do much about the passage of time. So you may as well make it your ally. Something that is in your corner versus something you're fighting against. And if we have the roadmap and we know that we could reach our destination in that time frame, then we can at times slow down and rest. You can feel it. Like, does anybody who here has dabbled in, in cryptocurrency or has bought some of a cryptocurrency, purchased an NFT? You'd say me in the chat. You'd say I'm a degen. I'm a degen. Uh, crypto buyer in the chat. Very tiny bit. None of you? <laughs> Who the hell is on this call? I know you guys are getting crypto. I know you are. <laughs> Come on. Who else? Warren. Yep. Ryan, me. Mary has an NFT. No idea what to do with it. Jeannie didn't get any of the payoffs. Bassam invested a lot. When you hear Silas is a degen, <laughs> yeah, when you hear these things like this coin is gonna 100x like tomorrow, you know, go, go, go. 
and you feel this rush. <laughs> anytime you feel that rush, and I'm sort of using crypto, crypto as a metaphor here, but anytime you feel a rush like that is a great indicator I should step away from the computer. I could put a day, 48 hours, between myself and that decision. You risk virtually nothing by doing that. But you're able to step in with a much more clear, calm perspective and take more appropriate action versus I got to rush, I got to jump in, I got to do this. That carries over to many, many, many things. So I will backtrack and ask you this. What's more important generally? Mindset or tactics? This is an opinion question. There's no right answer. Mary says mindset. Faith mindset. Genie mindset. I mean, it kind of makes sense for this crowd because that's who I would, <laughs> that's who I would attract. This is sample set bias. Here's another great example of sample set bias I saw just, just the other day. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, for that rounded answer. Carolyn says both depends on where you are in the process. Yes, nearly everything depends, which is actually a secret to mental toughness. Things are not one or the other. It depends. But Andrew Huberman of the Huberman podcast, Stanford, I think, uh, scientist, really into healthy lifestyle, biohacking, you know, he's like cold plunge first thing in the morning type of guy. And he made a poll on Twitter that asked if you were going to have drinks on New Year's Eve. And the choices were sober, one to three drinks, three to five drinks, five plus drinks, something like that. And four, and he had thousands and thousands of people answered the poll, something like 20,000 people. 46% said sober. And the other majority was in the five plus drinks. So that's also interesting, right? The polarity. But I thought to myself, man, this is a perfect example of sample set bias because Huberman's followers are more into that clean, sober, healthy lifestyle. You brought that poll out to a more generalized population, and I don't think you're going to see a majority in the sober camp, perhaps in the one to three drink category. Interesting aside. So it makes sense to me that for this crowd, we would say mindset is more important. And generally, yes, I tend to agree. Why? Because mindset is what I like to call a force multiplier. Something that increases the effect of force. So if you apply your force, your effort into something, what is a multiplier you could add so that your force is always more and more and more effective. I argue that a strong mindset is one of those things. It's foundational. Clarity on what you want is a force multiplier. How much easier is it to say no when you are clear on what you want and something presents itself that has nothing to do with what you want? Acceptance of who you are, what your preferences are, what your biases are, on what you want. Acceptance of when you feel like shit in the moment. Okay, I feel like shit right now. That's okay. It's pretty normal. <laughs> Happens to all of us. Versus I shouldn't feel this way. Telling yourself I shouldn't feel this way is not a force multiplier. In fact, it's a force halfer. Because now half at least of your attention is fighting with yourself. Not very useful. The mental models we create of the world, long time horizon, risk versus reward. All of these things can be force multipliers because you're able to apply them to your decision making over and over again. All of these things I would say are fundamentals. And faith brings up gratitude. That's a great one. 
gratitude is definitely a force multiplier. Gratitude for the good stuff, of course, and gratitude as a new lens, a new perspective you can adopt for the shitty stuff. Because there's always something you could be grateful for even when shitty things happen. Another force multiplier is learning how to learn. Because if you learn how to learn better, (laughs) then everything you learn will be more effective. We lose this in adulthood. In fact, it's one of the contributing factors to this thing here. Because, oh crap, I've got to learn. It's been a long time, really, since I've learned. I'm out of practice. Let me just go back and try something different. We loop around. I had to remember how to learn. I was one of those kids in school you would probably hate because I always knew what the answer was. And I would always get it right. I was a teacher's pet. In, I don't know, eighth grade, we had to memorize and perform a Shakespearean soliloquy. The teacher says, nobody will get an A on this. Yeah, right. (laughs) I did. I got to choose from like a 14-line soliloquy all the way through to the hardest one, Macbeth's. Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle towards my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. 31 lines. I was like, I picked that one. (laughs) And I performed it to perfection in front of the class. All the other kids hated me. After school, though, I forgot how to learn. I forgot how to learn anything else. You could argue that the smarter that you are and the more praise you are, oh, you're smart, you're smart. Yeah, that's nice to hear, but the moment something challenging comes, you don't feel smart and you feel like, well, this just isn't meant for me. You become, I got a slide for it, fixed in your learning. Where is she? It'll be worth it. Huh. There we go. It ends up feeling fixed, your smartness, your intelligence. So when it comes time to learn the next things that you need to learn to get to the next level, you might feel resistance to it. So I'll ask you a question with regards to this. Which of these do you tend to think the most? I need to be smart to succeed. I'm eager to learn more in the areas I'm naturally good at, or I want to improve my weaknesses. Now, of course, you can think all three of these things at certain times, but if there was one that you identify with the most, let me know because I'm curious. I need to be smart to succeed. I'm eager to learn more in the areas I'm naturally good at, or I want to improve my weaknesses. I see a good amount of threes and twos. This is interesting. Mary's a sponge. Yeah, I know Mary, Dr. Mary Bell is smart as hell. Now, when you want to improve your weaknesses, I wonder about this, right? Because they like to say, and we're often taught, don't focus on your weaknesses, focus on your strengths. Now the problem with that line of thinking is it's dichotomous, right? It's one or the other. And one of the quotes I've heard about this is, If you focus only on improving your weaknesses, then you'll just have a bunch of decent weaknesses. But where can we do both? How can we use the big brain and really give conscious thought to, well, which weaknesses 
if worked on gradually could make a huge effect, could be a force multiplier. Which of those weaknesses? That's something I want you guys to think about. Versus, like as an example, I am not the, trying to think of one of my weaknesses that I've just accepted and I'm not going to work on too much. Organization, not entirely, not the best. Somebody else can organize me. So I let that one go. There's a parallel to be drawn with, with the thinking of, I shouldn't feel that way. I should be better at organization. It's not a force multiplier. If somebody else can organize me and I do my part, which is show up and follow through on my commitments, that's the bigger force multiplier. So we can outsource organization. So what are some weaknesses of yours that it makes sense to say, that's that, that's the way it is. But these other ones, if I tweak and I improve, could make a big result. Delegation, leadership. For many of us, these are probably areas where a little work, if you find yourself weak there, could be hugely helpful. So a study was done on this whole you're smart thing with kids. Uh, Carol Dweck in her amazing book Mindset talks about this. The kids who were told you're smart, you're smart, you're smart. As soon as something challenging faces them, right? It could be learning a new type of math, usually something that is more challenging, something that requires effort. They run into a wall because they suddenly feel not smart versus children who are told, you try really hard, you give a good effort. They face a problem, they run into the wall, but they're like, well, I give a good effort, so I'm gonna try again. Versus the kid who is like, well, usually I'm smart, so this must not be for me. So all of this is a balancing act, and I try really, really hard to tell Eden, my daughter, you give a good effort, even when she's just smart as hell. Oh, that was a really good effort. Both when they're naturally adept at something and when they're not. You're giving a good effort. You tried again. It was hard at first, but you tried again. That's the concept of self-efficacy. It's different from self-confidence. It's different from self-esteem. Self-efficacy is the feeling of, I trust that I can try. I trust that I can try. This is a muscle you can do bicep curls on. So anytime you're facing an unknown, you don't have to task yourself right away with, I'm going to smash it. (laughs) I'm going to do the best fucking ever. I'm going to get all these results and all these outcomes. It's wild to think like that out of the gate. Now, if you naturally do, then by all means, great. We take whatever works. But if there's a context where you're not quite sure, you know, and you're feeling nervous, I ask you to give yourself just some self-efficacy. I trust that I can try. We can try nearly anything, right? I trust that I can try. Useful? Useful so far? You say happy birthday in the chat if this is useful. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. I trust I can figure it out. Yeah, Carolyn, definitely. Um, Marie Folio. If you guys don't follow her, I suggest you do. She's really great. Uh, Everything is figure outable. That is a line her mother said to her one day, and she wrote a whole book around that concept. Everything is figure outable. I don't have this in a slide, I don't think, but I've been thinking about this. Everything is figure outable and the theory of constraints. So the theory of constraints is this kind of advanced economic principle and framework that concludes 
that if we could find the biggest constraint and fix it, we get our wins versus adding a bunch of stuff on. What is the biggest constraint that we can remove from a situation in order to get to that next level? And I trust that each of you could try to find that. What is the biggest constraint? Is it a lack of focus on your part? Is it a lack of direction and planning? Is it that you've committed to 45 different things? Take some time, sit with it. Remember, that's how we learn how to learn. None of, we, um, there's this huge propensity we have. Ooh, Laura said this, I gotta know what that answer is immediately and I gotta get to work on it. No. If you do, by all means, great. But a lot of what I try to do is just open the loop for you. Just something to think about, something to be receptive to. When that loop is open and you have receptivity, you might be surprised. The answer might come to you in a dream or in the shower. And the reason for that is because our brains are operating in a different way. More of that alpha state, that calm state, different neurons quite literally connect right before we fall asleep or right when we wake up in the morning or we'll even have a dream about it. So just maintain some receptivity to, hmm, if I had to find the biggest constraint that is holding me back, what is it? Let's see where that bounces me to. Mm -mm. Carolyn says the shower in my thinking booth. And we need like recorders, voice recorders. Sometimes I put my, my phone and voice record in the shower if it comes or first thing in the morning. Long drive in the car. Absolutely. And Daniel Kahneman, he describes the same thing concept in a different way in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, diffuse mode thinking versus like focused, attentive thinking. So I'll move to a different question. Which do you tend to think the most? If I try and I don't see the goal outcome of my efforts, I failed. Or setting goals has helped me a lot. Ooh, this is great. A handful of twos. Setting goals has helped me a lot. That is wonderful. That's why I love asking. Eh, you never fucking know. See, I would have guessed one. I would have guessed the more people thought one. It used to be one, but now it's a two. Either way, there's no right or wrong answer. Remember, the point of these questions is to shine a little bit of light on some of the ways you're operating. And could it be useful to have awareness of the fact that you're operating that way, probably. So for those feeling one, who are these people? <laughs> Michael Jordan and Steph Curry, both known for their incredible work ethic and discipline and practice. But what is discipline and practice really? It's process-oriented goals. So the goal is not attached to an outcome. Both of them are known for practicing 100 free throws a day. Notice that that doesn't include make 50%. Or maybe for them, they would want 70, 80, 90%. That is not attached to this type of goal. It's not to say solution or outcome-oriented goals are useless. Again, we're not dichotomists. Everything is both. It is not one or the other. But if you struggle with number one, then it might be useful for you to add more process-oriented goals into your life. You are the only one who can control that outcome. It is up to you if you get your ass down to the court and do your 100 free throws in a day. If you want to write, it is only on you to sit at the computer, typewriter, or with a pen in your hand, 
and get those 500 words a day out. If you cannot complete a process-oriented goal when only you control the outcome, then it's very unlikely you'll be able to do it when there are other factors controlling the outcome. So if you had a process-oriented goal of, I want to create a YouTube video every single week. But then you're sad (laughs) that nobody's watching them. And you stop doing it. You've fallen short of your process-oriented goal. Because it's not about the views. You can take pride in your output, not its consumption. So you take pride in sticking to the process-oriented goal, no matter what. You will get that YouTube video online every single week. You will get that podcast out every single week. You will go live every day for a month, whatever the process-oriented goal is that you set. Because again, if you can't execute when nobody's watching, how are you going to be able to execute when people are watching? (laughs) And they're leaving you hate comments. You'll give up immediately. So you may as well earn your armor with nobody watching. Nobody watching can be a gift. You can change your perspective on it. And that is one of the secret ways to becoming more confident. Because we talked about the fact that these are three different things. Self-esteem, self-efficacy, and self-confidence. Efficacy, I trust that I can try. Confidence, trust in your ability to complete a task. Every time you make that commitment to do something, I'm going to write 500 words a day, just as an example. And then you don't, it hurts your confidence because you're losing trust in your own ability to complete the task. So if you want to boost your confidence, set process-oriented goals that you go ahead and execute on because you're building that sense of trust with yourself. And I'll quickly go into my strategy to develop process-oriented goals because we are in a new year here. Sidebar tangent. It's kind of funny. It's all dichotomous too, right? People, you know, resolutions, new year, new me, all this. And then the other camp of it's just another day, (laughs) you know? It's like whatever. What's useful? If a new year is useful and inspiring to you to take on a new practice, then by all means, why would anybody shit on that? So silly. Or if you're like, well, I've wanted to do this a month ago, and and so that's when I started, also great. Also great. Either way. So we're in a new year, and it might be a useful time for all of us to come up with some process-oriented goals. Simple You want to create these goals so that you can do them on your worst day. Do not create goals that require you to be at your peak every single day. (laughs) The peak is a small place. It's hard to beat by definition. Maximum load versus minimum recoverable volume. What could you do every single day? So I like to put this in two, maybe three buckets. First, we prioritize. What do we want to focus on? Say it was these two things. I like two to three things. Don't overwhelm yourself with too many things. But if your things were, for example, I'm going to write books and I want to improve my health. Those are my two buckets. Those are the two things that are most important to me. Let's say this year. Let's just add a unit of time to it this year. Okay. What are 10 possible process-oriented goals for each category? 500 words a day. Do you want to do it as 5, 7, 35? 3,500 words per week, if that's a better fit for your schedule and the way you know yourself to write and flow. 100 burpees a day, whatever some of the health one was, health ones are. I encourage you to ideate here. 
and come up with multiple ones so that you don't pigeonhole yourself to your very first idea. And if you think coming up with 10 ideas, this is for anything, is hard, then come up with 20. Because once you're in flow, the ideas will start coming and you might be surprised by what your 10th or your 11th possible idea is. Then you can decide which of those potential process-oriented goals you would like to commit to. And of course, if there's any possibility within here for something that helps both, I'm not sure off the top of my head what those might be. But they may very well exist for what your two buckets are. Force multiplier. So we would want to pay attention to any process-oriented goals that could help both of your buckets. Bobby said, committing to write an email a day starting today. Hell yes, I love that. That's something you could do on your worst day. It's super measurable. And you can write them. Are those going to go out to a list? Or are you writing for practice? Are you going to put them in a portfolio? Or what do we, where are they going to go? Portfolio. Wonderful. There we go. And even when, again, we're not so tied to the outcome. So you write an email that day, you're like, eh, it wasn't my best email. Guess what? You got tomorrow. <laughs> you're writing another one tomorrow. Don't sit in the, oh, that wasn't good. I quit. <laughs> that screws us all up. And we go back to the beginning and we're in the Dunn-Kruger curve again. And then, of course, we come up with it and we got to enact. So you put it on your calendar have an accountability partner of some sort. I like it on the calendar, so it pops up every day that you got to do this. Give yourself the dopamine of checking a box when you've done it. And remember that this is sneakily boosting your confidence because you're telling yourself, oh, I can execute the task that I've given to myself. And there's a huge accountability component to the masterclass that I'm doing starting tomorrow. If you want any other details about that, I will have Issa link the document about it in the chat whenever she gets a moment. Okay, next question. Boy, time flies. We're almost at an hour. Which do you tend to think the most? One, I am worthy of having everything I want. Wanting a lot is selfish or... I don't know what I want. Thank you, Isa. That's the link for the masterclass right there. I'm worthy of having everything I want. Wanting a lot is selfish, or I don't know what I want. Ones and twos. Bobby's doing the work, so he's reframed his thoughts to number one. One and three. One and three is interesting, huh? I relate to that. I know I'm worthy of having whatever I want. And then sometimes you don't know what it is. That takes a lot of ongoing work and introspection. And we have a handful of number twos. Wanting a lot is selfish, which is totally reasonable to feel because there's a lot of programming that goes on that causes us to feel that way. And telling ourselves, I'm selfish for wanting this, is a coping strategy and a defense mechanism we've developed to help us get through life. Okay, good. My peers will not find me selfish. They will continue to accept me and love me. So it's reasonable that we feel that way. But is it accurate? Is it true? Is it holding you back? This feeling that wanting a lot is selfish. Maria says, sometimes I want too many different things. Are you sure? If everything you wanted had one overarching category, and this is just a question to chew on. If everything you wanted had one overarching category, I wonder what that category would be. In fact, Maria, I have an assignment for you. For the next, this is a process-oriented goal. For the next 10 days, it's January 3rd. It's my birthday. I had to look at the date. For the next 10 days till January 13th, 
I want you to write down every day 10 things that you want. So by the time we're done, you'll have 100 things that you want. There'll be a repetition. That's fine. Whatever it is, just let it flow out of you. And then we'll chat and assess if you actually want too many things <laughs> or if you want similar things in different iterations. Either way, I don't know that there's a problem with it. So, especially for my selfish folks, and even for the ones who don't entirely feel clear on what they want, maybe this will be helpful. The fact that you want something is special and divine. So one of the things I teach, I normally have the list somewhere close by, is to do a list. Why me when you want something? Why me? You talk about your experience. You could talk about your aptitude for it, your interest, how it lights you up, whatever. All those reasons why me. And I always encourage people to include because I want it. That's why you, because you want it. Makes sense, doesn't it? When you want something, you take the knocks on the chin. When you want something, you will eat a shit sandwich for it. So that's why you. So to want something is special and divine. And one of my favorite quotes, I will read. This may be bleak <laughs> to start. We're going to die. And that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because most people are never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, greater scientists than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. It is in the teeth of these stupefying odds. It is you and I in our ordinariness that are here. We privileged few who have won the lottery of birth against all odds. We privileged few who won the lottery of birth against all odds. So why the hell huh, would you sit around and tell yourself that what you want is selfish? Because you know, you see what this means. The lottery of birth against all odds. You're lucky by birthright. You are born into luck. There is no lucky, unlucky. They're more lucky than me. You are lucky by birthright. Everybody. And especially us, you're watching this call via the internet. <laughs> you're able to sit at a computer or phone and absorb this material. 10.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. <laughs> you're even luckier than the majority of the population. So to potentially reframe any feelings of wanting a lot is selfish, holding yourself back from what you want is flipping off the luck you have by birthright. And for what? To appease who? We're grownups now. We're adults. So the things that we've learned to protect us, wanting a lot is selfish, I don't want a lot, I want to stay protected and loved and safe. That's gone now, though. You're an adult. So if you picture yourself, this is an exercise one of my coaches did with me. I thought it was really good. If you picture every age of you sitting around a campfire, so there's today 37-year-old Laura, 36, 35, 34, all the way down to one. Seven-year-old Laura is going to have reactions to certain things. Seven-year-old Laura may feel like I shouldn't feel that way. Seven-year-old Laura may feel like, well, wanting to do that is selfish because my mom's going to yell at me. <laughs> all that. 
13-year-old Laura might feel pissed off and might be like, and confused, right? And confused. Why is it like this? And I'm pissed about it. Whatever we are today is the rolling average of all of that. So if you can begin to parse it out and make a choice, we have choices about where we look, how we think, how we perceive things, the stories we tell ourselves. So if I were to honor all those other little Lauras around the campfire, yeah, I totally get it. But I'm this Laura now, so what choice do I make? It's in the pursuit of what I want. And I'm honoring the fact that I'm lucky by birthright, even though challenging things have happened to me. Make sense? And that is a Richard Dawkins quote. He's most known for being an atheist. I am not a hardcore atheist. I'm not even an atheist, really. I'm agnostic type, like Richard Dawkins. But <laughs> we don't have to agree you know, with every single stance somebody takes in order to appreciate their genius and their brilliance, right? In fact, I learned that quote when I went to an interview held by the Physics Society, I don't, I don't know, at uh, one of the universities here in Arizona, and Richard Dawkins was being interviewed. And the guy interviewing him is also a pretty hardcore atheist. And so he was trying to goad Dawkins into talking about why atheism is the way. And Dawkins is like in his 80s now, and he didn't want to talk about it anymore. He's like, I feel like I've answered those questions enough times. So I sort of laughed to myself thinking, you know, it could be that as Dawkins gets older <laughs> and gets closer to the final curtain, that he's like, well, I don't know about all that atheism shit. You know, maybe <laughs> let me just hedge my bets. That was just my interpretation. I thought it was funny. You are lucky by birthright. How cool. Pascal's wager. That's right, Carolyn. It's like, you may as well. And that comes to this issue of worth. Worth, right? Well, I'm not worthy of going after what I want. Am I really worth that? Do I have to prove myself? What is this issue of, of worth, right? People will say, charge what you're worth, or they'll, and you know, in, in casual conversation, somebody else might say to you, oh yeah, you know, you're worth it. I could tell you're worth it. And so you want to say, well, it's not really about worth. Like I'm this irrepeatable human, so I'm above the paradigm of worth. I don't know, that doesn't really resolve it for me. So I kept thinking about it. And I got lucky, because I'm lucky by birth, right? The origin of the word worth comes from Latin, Latin verb, worteti. I wrote the pronunciation, eh, the softy, worteti, which means to turn, to turn. So I started thinking about that, huh, to turn, if worth is in turning. So I thought about that in two ways. One, your ability to transmute what's handed to you into what you want, to alchemize tough situations, to put them in your tank so they're fuel for you instead of in your trunk or your baggage to you. Tank versus trunk. To transmute what's handed to you into what you want to alchemize pressure into diamonds. Let's say, as an example, there's another definition of turn. To physically and mentally turn your attention, you have a choice. You have a choice. So when you're at the crossroads, if you have that force multiplier of clarity on what you want, you know which direction to walk towards. If you have that force multiplier of a long time horizon, you know that you can quite literally shift your perspective from your cell phone right here in your face, put it down, look out there, shift the perspective, think longer term, realize that you are on track, three and a half hours. All nuggets to simply chew on, <laughs> leave open. You do not have to come to some sort of conclusion of if you agree, disagree immediately. And we are just at the hour mark. So I want to do two 
things. Were any of these potential blind spots a little bit, just need a peek, like just this much, just a, a little tiny shift of an eye opener for you? Something that you want to keep open and maintain receptivity towards. Because if you catch yourself with the stuff like, I have no time, now I could be the little angel or devil, whatever <laughs> your perception is. On your shoulder saying, mm, maybe you have too much time. What if you had less? <laughs> How would you solve this with less time? Or was looking at process-oriented goals helpful? This way you're not attached to the outcome. And now you know, shit, if I cannot do it when it is only me, how the hell am I going to do it where there are other things affecting the outcome? Or three, your feelings of worth v selfishness or that fixed learning mindset. What do I need to learn next? Oh crap, I got to learn again. It's a beautiful thing. And when you're learning in the areas, so I want to go back to that point because I feel like I have a little bit more to say about that. What are your strengths? What are your natural strengths? Because if you invest attention, resources, bandwidth into developing your strengths, if you're naturally in the top 10% at something, which we all are, we're all naturally, we're all gifted different attributes, proclivities, whatever you're in the top 10% at naturally, it only takes a little bit more, a little bit of learning to pop you up into that 1%. But I, as an example, I'll go first, I'll talk about myself, rested on my laurels for a really long time. I was writing since I was seven years old, Naturally a good card player, good at reading people. All of that made me a good copywriter right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Just good. And for a long time, I didn't even know that I had stuff to learn. And that held me back for years. If I had just applied myself to learning some more early on, I would have been the best of the game. Within like just a couple years. What are you naturally good at? That moving from that fixed learning mindset into a growth learning mindset could get you to the top 1%. And then applying that to which weaknesses, if improved, would be that force multiplier for you and which should you just let them be. You know, I'm never going to get better at doing my accounting, right? As another example, I should be better at accounting. No, you shouldn't. Those are resources to apply to what you're already in the top 10% at. Cool. So it looks like it was a nice spread also. People got stuff out of three, out of one, out of two, out of four, which is exactly kind of an ideal outcome for me, right? Because I want it all to be useful. All right. So I'm going to tell you this, and then anybody who must leave can, but then I want to open it up for a little bit of discussion to whoever would like to hang out for that. It is a birthday party after all. Jesus Christ, Laura, you really know how to have a fun time on your birthday. Lord, I know. Uh, this is my idea of a fun time. I'm going to play a poker tournament later today too. That is, that's what's going to be fun. Interestingly enough, a lot of these principles apply to poker. Maybe someday I'll, I'll write about that. Maria asks, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how we can recognize our strengths. We'll hold on to the song. Okay, good. Yeah, well, let's talk about it at the after party. For first, I just want to let you guys know because um, I tried to make it clear and not a bait and switch. In signing up for this, you will also just get notifications, reminders of every Tuesday. Every Tuesday, we're doing this stuff. We're going to go deeper. I'm going to be polling you guys on what would be most useful for us to talk about, open discussions on, uh, bringing in the occasional guest when I think they would be useful for everybody. So... Future classes, Tuesdays, 9.30, all free for us to hang out. Uh, we'll include stuff like how to stop procrastinating. For you guys who like follow me really, really well, you know that that line is kind of a trick. I'm kind of tricking you. I won't tell you why, though. It'll be revealed in the class. Problem solving and decision making frameworks. 
what to do when you're at those forks in the road. I think every single moment of time you're at a fork in the road. You realize that? Every single moment of time is a fork in the road with a gazillion different directions. Our reticular activating system, we're blocking a lot of them off because we would go insane if we saw them all. That's how you get hyper-presence when you realize, oh, I'm at another, yet another fork in the road. What am I going to do? Anywho, we'll go through ways to boost confidence, different leadership, delegation, time management, and how to prioritize your high-value tasks. If you only had four hours, what would you do? How to feel worthy no matter what. We will keep that thread going. And the continued removal of blocks like wanting stuff is selfish, imposter syndrome, fear of the unknown, shiny object syndrome, all of that. So that's what we're going to go through in more detail in, in future classes together. I cannot wait. I already can't wait till next Tuesday.